Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series titled Elijah. We're learning about an ordinary man with extraordinary faith who stood up in a time of darkness. Thanks for joining us today. Well, good morning, church family. Please take your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, no problem at all. We've got some in the seat backs in front of you. The black Bibles down there, you can grab those. If we've not met before, my name's Chuck. And if you're here as a guest today, we're so glad you're here. And just want to tell you that we have been walking through a series on the life of Elijah. We've been in the book of 1 Kings. We've just been looking for at different stories that make up his life, and t- today we come to another one of those stories. So it's a story that is about injustice. It's a story that's been around for a while. It's spoken to people across cultural, generational, national, historical lines. It stood the test of time. People resonate with it because it speaks to the human story. I want to tell you a little bit about this story. It's a story that it's, it's not meant to be read as a historical account, although it may or may not have, it may have happened. It's not meant to be read as a philosophical treatise on the topic of evil and justice. It's not going to answer every question that we have on this topic, but it's meant to be wrestled with. It's meant to be chewed on. It's meant to be read again and again, and again, and with each reading turned over like a diamond in our hand, as we turn that stone over, we see a different aspect of it, a different truth surfaces. That makes sense? So I'm excited to dive into this story, but before we do that, I want to tell you a different story, and it's another story that I think transcends the boundaries of culture and time. It's a story that I heard on a podcast called This American Life. Now, I am a big fan of This American Life. If you're not familiar with this podcast, it's similar to others of its kind, like StoryCorps, a radio lab. What these podcasts do is they just tell simple, everyday stories in amazing ways. And so what I want to do is I want to play a two-minute clip for you from this podcast. But before I do, I just have to give you a little background on the story. So uh, the editor uh, of this podcast, his name is David Kessenbaum, and he had two preschool-age kids in a local pre-K. And at this pre-K, they were having uh, an issue that pre-Ks around the nation are having. They were having an issue with tattling. Can I get an amen from any teacher or parent in the room? (laughs) So what they did is they took a tissue box, and they put it on the wall, and they put a plastic phone receiver inside the tissue box, and they said, that's the tattle phone. Tell it to the phone. And Kessenbaum just thinks this is brilliant, right? So he goes in, and he says, hey, hey. Uh, can we put a real phone in the classroom and record these tattles for this American life? And the teachers are like, sure, that's, that's no problem. And the parents are like, that's no problem, and you have to do this. <laughs> and so they get like this old school, chunky, red 1980s phone. They put this thing in the classroom, and the kids start to use it with enthusiasm. And this is some of what they record. Due to copyright restriction, this clip had to be removed from this message. So good, right? So good. (laughs) I love that last line. Sometimes we want actual justice. And I think what I love most about this story is the honesty of children. 
just able to name the elephant in the, in the room. We lose that ability as we get older. A four-year-old preschooler cannot make breakfast, can't get herself dressed, but she can tell you when something's not fair. And these kids, they long for justice. And as was said in the episode, maybe this is obvious, but don't so many of the conflicts in the world come down to some version of what's happening in that classroom. We want justice. Like, what gives? It's not fair. So my hope today is not to answer every question on the topic of justice. It's not to unpack every verse in this section of Scripture. I don't have time for that. But I just want to surface a few of the truths from God's Word on this topic, and I hope it's going to be helpful, okay? You with me? We dive in here. If you're following along, 1 Kings 21.1, it says, Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. And I want to stop right here and just say that I've sat in this text all week. I feel like I could spend the whole morning just sharing my admiration for this man, Naboth. He's got one line in the whole story, one line in the whole Bible, and yet he's no doubt the main character in this text. And we've called this series the life of Elijah, right? If you're following along in your notes, what we've been learning is that Elijah is an ordinary man with extraordinary faith. But I've just got to add to this sentence this week, and so was Naboth. So was Naboth. He's upright and blameless like Job. It's a man after God's own heart like David. He's someone you want in the community. Humble, hardworking, great character. And I want us to check this out on the screen. We're going to put Psalm 80 up here, verse 8 and 9. Psalm 80 says this. It says that Israel is like a vine. The Lord brought out of Egypt and he drove out the unjust nations and he planted this vine, Israel, and it took deep root and it filled the land. And the text goes on to say in metaphorical imagery that it blessed the surrounding nations. So if Israel's a vine, the Naboth is like the tender fruit of that vine quietly living out his faith in Yahweh in the shadow of the palace. If we continue, verse 1, the vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, if Naboth is like, gotta have this guy on the bus, like figure it out. I don't care what his role is. Get him on the bus. Ahab couldn't be more opposite. Get this guy out of here. He's ruining everything. He's self-centered. He's greedy. It's not like Job. He's like Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, a man after his own desires. And he could care less about Israel. He could care less about others. He could care less about Yahweh, the Lord, or his commands. He should be the model Israelite. He's the king but he's running after a different gospel, a shadow gospel. And what I want you to see in this text is there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on in this story, and it's more than a battle between Ahab and Naboth. But if you're following along in your notes, it's a battle between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, between coveting and cultivating, between coveting and cultivating. I want to define these two words, to covet. 
To covet means to desire what belongs to another. Exodus 20, 17 says, you shall not covet. It's in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And we say, what shall we not covet, Lord? The Lord says, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> should not covet anything, nothing. Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's job, your neighbor's life. In other words, stop looking at everything you think you don't have and look instead at what God has given you and cultivate it. Cultivate it. Cultivate. To cultivate means to prepare, to foster the growth of, to improve by labor or care, to further or encourage. In Genesis 1.28, God creates human beings. And he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it or cultivate it. Cultivate with the goodness of God. Work to further and foster the blessing of the kingdom of God on earth. Let's just, let's just watch how these two competing narratives, these two gospels play out. So verse 2, Ahab says to Naboth, let me have your vineyard. I'm going to use it for a vegetable garden. It's this beautiful, lush vineyard. It was in Naboth's grandfather's family, and then his father had it, and now he's had it. They've been cultivating this land. These grapes are amazing, and the wine it's producing is like high, high dollar. And Ahab's like, I'm going to turn it into a vegetable garden. What's the deal? Why? Because it's convenient for me. You see that in the text? It's close to my palace. And in exchange, Ahab says, I will give you a better vineyard. Or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. And what Naboth and Ahab both know, we don't know, because we're not from that culture, but we need to understand this. Numbers 36.9 is up here on the screen. And it says that the inheritance of the people of Israel, so says the Lord, shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Furthermore, furthermore, in Leviticus 25, it says, if it is transferred, now why would it be transferred? I don't know. People are going through hard times, and they've got to sell their land to make a little bit of money. And the Lord says, that's fine. That's fine if that needs to happen, but here's what we're going to do. Every seven years, that land that has to be sold is going to be given back to the original owner, and we're going to call that year the year of Jubilee, and we're going to throw a party. Is that not an awesome law? It's amazing. Why does God put this law in place? Because he's concerned about injustice, and he doesn't want to see the unequal distribution of land. God doesn't want commodity to rule the day. He wants covenant to rule the day. Covenant, like with the people. Like we're going we're gonna to go forward together, not just for a couple months or years, but decades. We're going to cultivate this city. A covenant with the land. We're going to cultivate this land year after year after year. And it's going to produce good stuff. But Ahab doesn't care. Everything's cheap to Ahab. What's the next thing? Next thing. What's the next thing? He's like the crooked or corrupt CFO, governor, politician, comes to your house if you work for him at night, and he says, here's what we're going to do. And Naboth could have made out great, better vineyard, more money, nicer setup. But this doesn't happen today. It's so irrelevant, right? 
Why is there injustice in the world? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is absolutely because the heart is fickle and sin is real and people are tempted to covet what is not theirs rather than cultivate what they've been given. If you're following along in your notes, we're so tempted to covet what is not ours rather than cultivate what we've been given. But faithful Naboth, faithful Naboth stands face to face with the king of all Israel, knowing the offer he could have, knowing that declining the offer could bring trouble. And he says in verse three, his one line in the whole story, he says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And the story doesn't say he complained. Doesn't say he created trouble. Doesn't say he disrespected the king. He simply stands on the word of the Lord like a tree planted by living water, Psalm 1. Like the psalmist David who says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23. Some trust in more stuff, but I trust in the name of the Lord my God. And I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Or as I pass from life into death. I love Naboth. Naboth has received land from the Lord. The land's not his. It's a gift to him, a gift from the Lord to steward. He's content with that. He doesn't need any more, but Ahab, he can't get enough, and he can't keep up with what he already has, and he just wants more and more and more. So what does Ahab do? He does what any of us do when we're chasing after the things of this world. We can't get enough, and we don't get what we think we should have. He throws a tantrum, (laughs) right? Big pity party, just angry. He sits on his bed and he won't eat. And Jezebel, his wife, who should walk into him, I hope my wife does this for me all the time. She should walk in and confront him. But instead, she walks in and she says, hey, Ahab, get up, cheer up. I'm going to get you the vineyard because we can have what we want. Right? (laughs) That's That's how it plays out. And you got to notice here everything that they do to frame Naboth from verse 9 to 16 is done in the name of religion. Ugh, just disgusting. Verse 9, a day of prayer is observed and fasting on the same day that this faithful Israelite is executed. Then they had two witnesses accuse him in verse 13, as is directed in Deuteronomy. And they had the proper penalty applied for cursing God in verse 13, as is directed in Leviticus. And he's taken outside the city gates and stoned to death, all as Ahab sits in his palace, surrounded by his luxury and does nothing. Covetousness, if you're following along, is one of the roots of injustice. And maybe, maybe you're sitting here today, you're like me halfway through this story, you know, you're like, I'm getting it. Like, that makes sense. Covetousness, that makes sense. But I still feel like one of those pre-K kids. Like, I still got questions because Naboth is, is dead and he didn't get a fair trial. I feel like the prophet Jeremiah, so honest is the prophet Jeremiah. You've got this on your notes in the first gray box. Let's read it together. It says, you are always righteous, Lord. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Right. Why? Why, Lord? Why does Naboth have to die? Why couldn't you intervene earlier? And why 
is a good question. We have to bring our whys to the Lord. He wants us to. In the Psalms, you see it all the time. Why? But if we get stuck on why, 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 it just leads us into a downward cycle of despair. So if why is a good question, then what is a great question? And I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about what God has done and what we as the church should do in light of that. All right? So Ahab and Jezebel, they're convinced they've gotten away with this because they thought Naboth was the owner of the vineyard. Naboth's not the owner of the vineyard. God is the owner of the vineyard, and God's heart for humanity is such that he grieves injustice if you're following along. God grieves injustice. He grieved in the garden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Where are you, he says. Where are you guys? What, what are you doing? He grieved when Cain killed Abel, saying to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He grieved when all humanity practiced nothing but evil in the time of Noah. The text literally says it grieved him to the heart. Genesis 6.6. The council of scripture screams that God is deeply burdened by the injustice his children face. It was Jesus, God in the flesh, who walked into Jerusalem and proclaimed over the city, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets. And God is saying to Ahab, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? Killing my righteous son Naboth, not listening to my prophet Elijah, Naboth's blood cries out to me from the ground. God grieves injustice, and he knows and sees every person that goes through it. Number two, God confronts injustice. God confronts injustice. Look at the word he gives Elijah to take to Ahab. Verse 18, it says, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria, He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. And say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And then say to him, in the very place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. In other words, enough. Enough of this. And sometimes... Stuff like this in the scripture can make us a little bit nervous. But I tell you about the heart of God. He's not a God that goes out looking for a fight. He's not a God who's quick to anger. He's not a God who takes pleasure in the death of anyone, but he is a God who will fight for the oppressed. And if the betrayal and the killing of an innocent son by the hands of a leader entrusted to serve and to lead doesn't make you angry, then I've got questions, don't you? I've got questions. There's coming a day when all things will be put back to rights and the Ahabs of the world who could care less about the pain that they cause will be held accountable. I don't know how exactly it's going to go down, but it's going to go down. God confronts injustice eventually. He confronts injustice through the church in the present. We'll talk about that in a minute. Number three, God experiences injustice. Say what? God experiences injustice? What other religious leader, God, anyone experiences injustice? Let's look quickly here at Psalm 73. I'm going to put this up on the screen. 
It says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Another person, I love this in the scripture, just wrestling with this topic. Then on our notes, second grade box, let's read it together out loud. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Must, not, must be a different translation, is that right? Forgive me, that's my fault. Here's the question. He says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, then it made sense. Who's in the sanctuary? Who's seated on the throne in the sanctuary? Revelation 7.15 says it is the Lamb of God. It's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And the text, Revelation says, that he has secured through his death a future with no more hunger and no more thirst, no more injustice. And the psalmist is saying, I saw that and I understood that the Lord identifies with the broken and he secured an unending eternity for the broken, which is all of us. This life is temporary. It's like a blip on the radar. It's a scratch on the timeline of eternity. And I'm convinced that the story of Naboth, his life, his tragic death, it points to another tragic death. Another righteous man cultivating and proclaiming the kingdom of God wherever he went. Betrayed by the very ones who were supposed to be God's mouthpiece, the Pharisees. Accused by false witnesses, though he was innocent killed outside on a cross on a hill called Golgotha outside the city gates. Jesus became the abused. He became the betrayed. And he now lives having endured the cross and its shame to look every innocent victim in the eyes on the other side of eternity and say, I understand. I was with you then and I'm with you now. I told you the world, this world's not all there is. So if you're here today and you've experienced injustice and you're walking through it right now, maybe, and that could be a lot of us because you don't have to go far in this world before you experience it. I didn't want to leave you hanging, but I didn't have time in the message to speak to, well, what, what should I do? What should I do? And so on the back of the message notes, I've just listed three questions that I think might be helpful just to reflect on prayerfully, take some time. These questions were taken from a series that was done out of Bridgetown Church in Portland. I've put that series there too. I hope this might be helpful to you. But here's the one thing I want to say to you. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't give up. Remember that why is a good question, but what is a great question? And ask yourself this question, what is the next thing God is asking me to do? Just a simple, small step. I'm telling you, I've walked with people through this, and I've walked through it myself. God will meet you. As you take that next small step, he's going to meet you. Surround yourself with good people. Let us serve you in any way that we can, but take that next small step. Now I want to talk to us as the church If this is what God has done, if this is his heart, then what should we do? And we're his image bearers, his reflection. So if he does this, then we should do it too. If God grieves injustice, then we as his image bearers should be just as heartbroken. We're called to lament. We're called to lament and we just don't know how to lament. 
And the suburbs of American cities are terrible places to learn, aren't they? That's not a dig, but this is the truth. We're surrounded by everything that we could ever need and ever want. We're just going to be aware of our growth edges based on the cultures that we're immersed in. Holy Spirit, teach us to be aware of the pain in the world. I've uh, become an even more, uh, a larger fan of Charles Dickens. And I read A Tale of Two Cities this past year, a phenomenal book, if you can get past kind of the old English. But he also wrote A Christmas Carol. You familiar with that? And I watch this every Christmas, and I, to, no shame here, I, I cry, like I bawl <laughs> this movie. And so there's this scene, uh, it's, it's towards the end, and he's with the ghost of Christmas present, and he's in Bob Cratchit's house. Yeah. And he's looking at the corner, and, and there's Tiny Tim's crutches there. And he looks at the spirit and he says, spirit, tell me, will tiny Tim live? And the spirit says back, I see a vacant seat and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. And Scrooge, Scrooge grieves and he says, no, no, spirit, say he'll be spared. And the ghost says, if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. But if he must die, then he had better do so and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge just hangs his head to hear his words quoted back to him by the spirit. He's overcome with grief. And then the spirit says this to him. Perhaps next time you will hold your tongue until you have realized what the surplus population is and where it is, because it may well be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh, amazing writing. Scrooge is Ahab. He could care less. He's hoarding all this stuff he can get his hands on. And this is the turning point in his story when he finally sees for the first time those he hadn't been considering. The scales just fall from his eyes. Who am I not considering? Lord, help me to lament. Next slide. We stand against. We stand against. If God confronts, we stand against. And I've got a question as I read this story. Where were the people in this city standing for Naboth? Where? Did no one speak up? Were they complicit? Is there blood on their hands? And the story, like all great stories, it doesn't tell us, but rather it just surfaces this question, brings it into the middle of the room, and drops it. Who stood up for Naboth? And there's a fear and a lack of trust that is palpable in our culture right now. There's a political polarization that's happening, not just in our culture, but in our church. And it's being used by the enemy to tear the church apart and to blind her from seeing one of her truest missions, which is to stand as Jesus did for those who have been treated unjustly, for the unborn child that cannot speak up on her own, and for the woman unjustly taken advantage of, doesn't know where to turn, and for every person of another race mistreated because of the color of their skin, 
and for the abused and for the falsely accused and for the martyr and the displaced and the enslaved and the abandoned, who will stand for Naboth? And last, we as the church are called to love self-sacrificially. Jesus carried his cross and he asks us to take up ours and follow him, to die to self-coveting and to live for him, cultivating. We love because he first loved us. And the thing that sustains this kind of love, because it gets hard, does it not? But what keeps it going month after month, year after year, decade after decade, is that he first loves us and loved us, continues to through our downs and our ups. And when we miss it, because his very essence is love, and we must run off of that or we just run out of steam. That's how it works. I've been so inspired by the life, the story of Brian Stevenson. And uh, if you don't know his story, you can read about it in a book he wrote called Just Mercy. He's a lawyer who's given his life to stand and serve those who've been falsely incarcerated. So he's uh, in a scene in this book on the phone with an inmate that he's been serving, and he can't save this guy. And they're on the phone, and, and the inmate's name is Jimmy. And all Jimmy wants to do is tell Brian, thank you. Because <laughs> no one's ever stood up for him. And it's his execution date. And Jimmy's just trying to tell Brian, thank you, thank you. And Brian's on the other side of the conversation, just crying, bawling his eyes out. And he hangs up the phone. He looks around his office, and there's stacks of papers and folders everywhere. Each one represents another person, another person, another person. He's just like, I am done. I'm done with this. I can't fight a system that doesn't want to change. How am I supposed to do this? And he sees a picture of some of his staff, and he says it hits him like a cup of cold water in the face. And he says this, I realized for the first time that I don't do this because it's required, and I don't do it because it's necessary, and I don't do it because it's important, and I don't do it because I have no choice, but I do it because I'm broken too. And when people get close to Jesus in the Bible, they're not only attracted to his inner beauty, but they are more aware than ever of their own brokenness. And this happened to Ahab. This happened to Ahab. If you look in the text, verse 27, 28, 29, Ahab repents. What? <laughs> like Scrooge. With the ghost of Christmas present, he sees others for maybe the first time in his life, and God shows him mercy. And we don't know what to do with this. Like, should we be outraged or overjoyed? Are we supposed to throw a party or a protest? And we remain caught in this till we go into the sanctuary of the Lord. We allow the beauty of God to penetrate our hearts, showing us not just our own brokenness, but his overwhelming mercy. Jesus, the better Naboth, the better Elijah. Jesus, the true vine. Guys, remember Psalm 80? We looked at it at the beginning of the message. Psalm 80 says that Israel is a vine planted 
It took deep root and it blessed or was supposed to bless the nations, but Israel couldn't get it done. And so Jesus steps in to fulfill what Israel could never accomplish. And in John 15, 5, it's up on the screen. John 15, 5, Jesus says these words, I am the vine and you are the branches, the true Israel, the new Israel. And whoever it is that abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear or cultivate much Fruit, it's all connected. We can't do it in our own strength. None of it, but we're not meant to. And repentance is just the minute by minute by minute gift to make the free choice to abide in Jesus rather than this world and cultivate the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If you're following along, that's repentance. It's a free choice. To abide in Jesus rather than this world and cultivate the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know where this message leaves you. Maybe you identify more with Ahab and you just realize you're more used to getting what you want than you knew. (laughs) Maybe you're like Naboth just experiencing injustice. But for most of us, we're probably somewhere in the middle. It's just complex mess back and forth. Because isn't it the crux of it? Isn't it the crux of it? When we're in the presence of the Lord, we just realize we're all like a bunch of preschool kids trying to wrap our minds around the subject of injustice and love. So the choir is going to sing. I love it if we join with him, with them and sing. There's going to be uh, people who can pray with you. I think down here and down here, maybe in the back of the room, here and there. They're going to be there through the song. And then we're going to take communion. And we'll be done. We'll just, we'll just stay here. We want to serve you in any way that we can. But it's hard to trust right now in our culture, isn't it? It's hard to trust. Who do we trust? That leader's falling. And that pastor's falling. And that church. And that news source. And what do I do? Who do I go to? And I just want to tell you, you can trust Jesus. I promise you. You can trust him. And it's care. Character. You can trust him. Look for that. Look for the fruit of the Spirit of God in other people and in organizations and in churches and wherever you look for that and join in that. Cultivate that. If you're wondering who's worthy, he is. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.